0: Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Happy Friday to all. I'm not exactly sure why I celebrated. I can't remember the last weekend I had completely off. But I'm still happy it's Friday anyway. Go figure. I'm also happy that I'll be working very hard this weekend, actually, on my Patreon site, which I hope to launch next week, depending on how many snafus I run into over the weekend, mainly I'll be finalizing some content and I'm I'm not sure of all the technical details. And as long as I can get everything up there that I want to have ready for first-time members, for the first foundational members, then it will indeed launch next week. And I can give you a hint that there'll be some written content that is only available to members. And there will also be at least one course uh, the first of many that i hope to offer both for sale at retail to non-members and free as part of your membership in the tom mullen talks freedom patreon site so looking forward to that and i'm also looking forward to some great guests next week now i know i've been promising you eric peters and The God's Honest Truth, we have gotten together twice to try to record an interview and the internet fairies have conspired against us with some kind of technical difficulty with audio. So we will get Eric Peters on for an update in the ongoing war of our travel independence, namely the war on automobiles and our owning them. But I'll also have John O'Neill and Sarah Wynn, the authors of a new book called The Dancer and the Devil, Stalin, Pavlova, and the Road to the Great Pandemic. So that should be an interesting discussion. I can tell you it's a great book. I got a review copy in advance. And also the great Norm Singleton will be with me to talk about some of his writing on regulating big tech as public utilities and other private property issues that I've talked about from time to time here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom as well. So got a big week coming up lots of things to be excited about today an article caught my eye by michael rechtenwald and i'm not sure how many people in the audience are familiar with him but he was a former marxist from academia that for many years wrote in the typical marxist style believed all the marxist pieties and had a great awakening so to speak When his fellow Marxists and academia turned on him, I believe it was because of a COVID heresy that he dared to utter in the midst of working at New York University. And like a growing number of former leftists, he realized that there's just something wrong with the way these people look at the world. It's too bad there aren't more people that undergo this transformation, but Certainly, there are some high-profile ones. Michael Recknenwald is one of the more intelligent people. He's not coming out of media like Bill Maher or somebody like that who thinks they're smart. He really is smart. And he's got a great article on Mises.org called, Do Conspiracies Really Exist? Murray Rothbard Thought So. So you'll be happy to know that Michael is now well down the road of being a Rothbardian libertarian, and he's been reading Austrian economics and Rothbard, and of course he cites him in this piece. And the thrust of the piece is that, number one, the term conspiracy theory, as we all know, is used as a sledgehammer, so that just by alleging something is a conspiracy theory, people are to assume that it's not true. Not only that it's not true, but it's just so ridiculous that nobody but someone mentally deficient or mentally ill would believe it. That's what they want you to hear when they say it's a conspiracy theory. And of course, that's what they want you to think about anyone they call a conspiracy theorist. This is probably not big news for too many listeners, but just to kind of set up the article as uh, Michael Rechtenwald does, and then... The main thrust of it is that Karl Marx's whole theory of communism and exploitation of the workers is itself a conspiracy theory. The theory that all of these capitalists, even though they're in no way coordinating their activities most of the time, unless they're in some cartel with the government, but that all these capitalists, even when they're competing against each other for labor, are somehow engaged in a concert of action that exploits workers to extract from them what Marx calls the surplus value that they create. So that the theory that Marx puts forth in Capital is that there's a certain amount of labor that's necessary and product of labor just to keep the workers alive, but that the workers actually produce more than that, and what the capitalist does is take all the value over and above what's needed to keep the workers alive and thus steals from the worker. And that, based on Marx's mistaken labor theory of value, something he unfortunately got from Adam Smith, Marx believed that most of the value of production was produced by the so-called workers. The capitalists, of course, don't work. And that the capitalists, if anything, provided a marginal benefit at the beginning and only because they had somehow seized possession illegitimately of capital in the past are they able to do this. Rechtenwald cites a passage from Marx that I'll read to you. This is from Capital, Volume 1, Chapter 7, Section 2. And this is Karl Marx writing now. The fact that half a day's labor is necessary to keep the laborer alive during 24 hours does not in any way prevent him from working a whole day. Therefore, the value of labor power, and then in brackets, what the capitalist pays the laborer to sustain his life, end brackets, and the value which that labor power creates in the labor process, brackets again, the value of the commodities he produces, end brackets, are two entirely different magnitudes. And this difference of the two values was what the capitalist had in view when he was purchasing the labor. So in other words, as I said, the capitalist is engaging in this ruse, this not quite extortion because he's not threatening the worker with violence, but at the very least a theft since the capitalist is extracting all the value that this laborer is providing over and above what is needed to keep the laborer alive, and and adding very little to the process himself. And then here's Rechtenwald commenting on that passage and, and on Marxism in general. He says, It cannot be overestimated how central this supposed phenomenon is to the Marxist project. Quote, Exploitation, unquote, is the basis of the Marxist requirement That the working class unite, rise up, and overthrow its capitalist overlords. It is the basis of the need for communist revolution. This need is based on a conspiracy theory. And, in parentheses, the false labor theory of value, as I mentioned before. And he goes on to say, Yet curiously, socialists are probably the group most apt to level the accusation of conspiracy theory. As a contemporary example, take this 2017 essay in Counterpunch, written by an avowed Marxist entitled, A New Dawn for Fascism, The Rise of the Anti-Establishment Capitalists. Here's the first paragraph, and now this is from that article he cites. The world rests on a precipice. On the one hand is institutionalized exploitation and imperialist violence. The well-being of humanity continues to be severely hampered by the priorities of a small, unstable capitalist class who would prefer that the rest of us, those who must engage in a daily struggle to purchase the essentials for living, like food and a roof over our heads, remain unorganized as a cohesive class. And on the other hand, there are those who believe that the fundamental class division between the rulers and the workers is both intolerable and unsustainable, and so seek to participate in and organize mass movements for social change that will bring an end to the domination of one class of people over another. And now Rechtenwald commenting again, we see Marx's claim of surplus value extraction embedded in the first sentence followed by the belief that a small, unstable capitalist class intentionally aims at keeping the rest of us unorganized as a cohesive class. Likewise, the conspiracy of the capitalists is largely, contra-popper, successful. And I'll get to what he's referring to there in a minute. The article goes on to complain about problematic and conspiratorial but ostensibly anti-establishment ideas that have been able to sometimes temporarily supplant class-based analyses about how and why social change happens. In the rant, these are right-wing and fascist ideas that are characterized no less than 36 times as conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking engaged in by conspiracy theorists. So again, he's driving home the point that although all of Marxism is based on the most unlikely conspiracy theory of all, which is that all of these different capitalists who don't even talk to each other, who often resent each other and compete with each other, that they're all somehow in this big plot to expropriate the noble laborers, That they're all engaged in this concert of action, even though nobody talks about it. But yet these people who believe that are labeling anybody that disagrees with them as a conspiracy theorist. And and the article, he says dozens of times uses these terms, conspiracy theory, conspiracy theorist, and conspiratorial. So ironic indeed. That's one thrust of the article. The other is to somewhat refute the general reaction to the term conspiracy theory that people have an almost visceral reaction these days that they hear someone accused of being a conspiracy theorist or what they're alleging as a conspiracy theory. People just immediately assume that it is not true. And he goes into a little bit of the history of the term conspiracy theory Now, a lot of people of the libertarian bent put this at the doorstep of the CIA and point to declassified documents produced by the CIA where they discuss using the term in a weaponized fashion to discredit anybody who challenges the Warren Commission explanation of the Kennedy assassination. And certainly, I think, That's obviously true because we have the documents that they did do that. And I think it's also true that the intelligence agencies have since continued the practice of weaponizing the term conspiracy theory to discredit anybody who might be looking into their activities. But when people go so far as to say that the CIA invented the term, well, that's obviously not true because we do have... Evidence that it existed before the CIA existed. And Rechtenwald cites the Oxford English Dictionary as citing the word's first usage in a 1908 article in the American Historical Review. But he credits a writer named Karl Popper as the first to elaborate on the conspiracy theory idea in a work called The Open Society and Its Enemies. And he says that Popper discussed it again in Conjectures and Refutations, the Growth of Scientific Knowledge. And the main thrust of Popper's work on the term is that the conspiracy theories generally are not true. Now, I'm going to qualify that and say the conspiracy theories that try to explain everything as the result of interested parties conspiring together to achieve those ends. Those are what Popper says are not true. Not that they don't exist, but that they're never successful. But as Rechtenwald explains in analyzing Popper's work, the smaller conspiracies are true. And of course we know people conspire all the time. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to tommullentalksfreedom.com slash Blinkist. Spelled B L I N K I S T. That's Tom dot com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get twenty percent off today. And now let's get back to the show. The answer that you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical. If you think the Marxists are hypocritical in accusing people of engaging in conspiracy theories, well, just take a look at the government, especially the federal government. Nearly every drug case is a conspiracy theory. And they, they always allege a conspiracy because once they prove that there was a conspiracy, they can sentence people for much longer sentences. Especially in drug cases, they'll get somebody who is a minor player in some distribution network And then they'll sentence that person for all the drugs sold by everybody in the conspiracy. So certainly with the largest prison population on earth, bigger than China's, who has four times as many people, the U.S. government is by far the most prolific conspiracy theorist in human history. So while Popper is skeptical of most conspiracy theories, I'll just uh, share one more passage from Rechtenwald's analysis of his work, and first a quote from Popper, which says, "...the conspiracy theory of society cannot be true because it amounts to the assertion that all results, even those which at first sight do not seem to be intended by anybody," are the intended results of the actions of people who are interested in these results. And he then says, It is clear from this formulation that Popper's charge does not apply to all conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories that do not purport to explain everything are not included in Popper's indictment. After all, Popper admitted conspiracies, quote, are typical social phenomena, unquote, Popper claimed that most conspiracies fail, which implies that some conspiracies succeed. Further, conspiracy theories might explain not only conspiracies that are successful, but also those that ultimately fail. Conspiracy theories, or better, conspiracy hypotheses, are merely attempts to explain outcomes in terms of attempted conspiracies. Those theories that do not aim at explaining everything in terms of a singular overarching conspiracy are based on an acknowledgment that conspiracies do transpire and that some outcomes are the results of successful conspiracies. An attempted bank robbery is technically a conspiracy and explaining the plot to rob a bank is technically a conspiracy theory. Likewise, conspiracy hypotheses cannot be dismissed in advance. They must remain one of the modes for understanding social reality. So one thing that Rechtenwald does not explicitly say that one might conclude from his argument is that the more overarching and elaborate the conspiracy theory is, the less likely it is to be true in its entirety, at least. And the more specific... And the less overarching a conspiracy theory is, the more plausible and likely to be true it is. Now, again, that's my editorializing on reading Rechtenwald's article. I encourage you to read it yourself. But I do want to share a few other thoughts of my own on the whole conspiracy theory question. And just an observation that the term has become so widely used for so many things that are not conspiracies. Basically, the term is now used as a pejorative against any idea that one thinks is far-fetched or unlikely to be true. So I've even observed people using the conspiracy theory smear to discredit an allegation about the activities of a single person, which obviously can't be a conspiracy. So the word conspiracy does have a definition, In fact, I'll go to Merriam-Webster, and when you look up definition of conspiracy, it says the act of conspiring together, which, of course, implies more than one person. And they use the example, they were accused of conspiracy to commit murder. Well, what is conspiring? Merriam-Webster's definition is to join in a secret agreement to do an unlawful or wrongful act or an act which becomes unlawful as a result of the secret agreement. So you see the word secret is used several times, and that's an essential element of something being a conspiracy. And this has always been my pushback against people who try to smear basically reporting the news as a conspiracy theory. For example, the Great Reset is referred to as a conspiracy theory. Well, No, people are are actually just quoting what was published in Time magazine about what the Great Reset is and in Klaus Schwab's book. So merely calling out Klaus Schwab and, and his compatriots' plans for the future if they were to get their way is not a conspiracy theory because they've published these ideas and they're freely available to the public. They've made no secret about them. And indeed, much of what is discredited as conspiracy theory are simply people voicing their disagreement with plans made by influential people that have been made publicly available and reported sometimes by the people themselves. So the last thing I wanted to say about conspiracy theories and conspiracies is that some do exist and some do meet the definition and the title of this episode is many conspiracy theories are true but that doesn't matter so if it is true that sometimes people plot in secret to bring about policies that affect the public at large then why would that not matter well here's my reasoning And I'll use the Federal Reserve as an example. Of course, everyone knows that the Federal Reserve was cooked up in a secret meeting on Jekyll Island between some senators and representatives of the Morgan and Rockefeller banking empires. And the fruits of that meeting were eventually the Federal Reserve Act, which was then passed by Congress and signed by President Woodrow Wilson. And so it was this conspiracy that gave us the Federal Reserve Act. Well, no, because you're skipping that part where it was passed by Congress and signed by the president and also overwhelmingly supported by the public, which is the reason it could be passed by Congress and signed by the president. Now, I know a lot of people will say, oh, come on, Congress passes things that the public doesn't want all the time. Not really. Most of the terrible institutions that we have that make the government so large and oppressive, and overwhelming support from the public at the time that they were enacted. When the public is vehemently against something, believe me, these politicians are cowards. They will not risk losing their jobs if they don't think that they can sell the idea to the public. And I'll give you a great example, it's not from that long ago, 2008. They proposed TARP, which was the $700 billion bailout. That used to be a big bailout, by the way, for Goldman Sachs and Citibank and all the investment banks that had invested in mortgage-backed securities and credit default swaps and gotten themselves leveraged to the hilt and would all have gone bankrupt if they weren't bailed out. And the first reaction to this by the public was, no, you're not going to do this. People were calling their congressmen. The phones were ringing off the hook. And for the only time in my life when they were showing the hearings on the TARP bill, I saw blind fear in the faces of a lot of these Congress critters. It was kind of a glorious thing. And then what happened? George W. Bush was sent out to basically scare everybody that they were going to suffer this horrible fate if they didn't allow TARP to go through, and it was successful in tamping down the opposition. And to this day, boy, how embarrassing. It's one thing to be fooled by a smart guy like Klaus Schwab or Elon Musk, but to be fooled by George W. Bush, boy, that's a hard one to get over. In any case, it was only when they felt they had public support that Congress was able to pass that bill. The first time that it was put to a vote, it failed. So the reason I say that conspiracies don't really matter in the end, even when they are true, is because you always get a chance to consent or not consent to whatever plans the supposed experts cook up in secret. You always get a chance to say no. And I'll go one step further that it's always a devil's bargain. Inherent in every choice offered to the public, like the Federal Reserve Act, like the income tax, like Social Security, like all of it, is an offer of safety, security, or something for nothing as long as you will abandon the principle of property right, Because that's what it always comes down to. Property rights always provides a guide on what the right thing to do is. But if you let yourself be talked into, oh, this is for the common good or this is for the general welfare, you got to be honest with yourself. You're doing this, you're supporting this because you think you're going to get something out of it, and you're willing to allow property rights somewhere, someone else's, to be violated. So even when it comes to the Great Reset, there will be that devil's bargain offered to the public, and whether the Great Reset succeeds or fails will depend on whether the public makes that deal with the devil or not. So the excuse that they were lied to by the media or the politicians or whatever other excuse there's going to be, I'm telling you in advance and I want you to look for it when the moment comes. There will be a choice to be made whether you once again agree that property rights be violated, that wealth be redistributed or not. And if you say no, there will be no Great Reset. But if the majority of the public says yes, there will be. So it doesn't matter what people are talking about in boardrooms or behind your back or in secret. When it comes right down to it, groups like the Bilderberg Group, for example, those are just people exercising their rights. They have as much right to get together and talk about policy as you do. You certainly don't want the government bursting into your house and arresting everybody if you have people over to your house and have a political discussion. So the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderberg Group, the Davos crowd. Yeah, these people are bad actors and they're all in there conspiring, but they have no power. Their talk has no teeth unless you consent to whatever plans they make. And as I said, that's all going to come down to whether the public once again decides to violate property rights or not. So let's call that a wrap for today and for another great week here at Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, episode 66. I can't believe it. We're chugging chugging towards 100. I'd like to ask a favor of everybody and in the comments, or you could send me an email, let me know what kind of content you'd like to see as a paying member of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Would you like to see more written commentary? Would you like to see additional audio or video content? And what kinds of subjects? I particularly like investigating the historical precedents for current events that are being debated. It is true that history repeats, and I always find it's helpful to look back at when some of the same ground has been trod before and how the results turned out or why a particular policy was rejected in the past and and what arguments are being made for it now are they new usually no so that's some of the kind of material i have in mind for you but i'd really love to hear what you would like to see in the members area of tom mullen talks freedom remember this will be a reasonable price that will be charged some kind of monthly subscription fee and i think the first level will be pretty low like Five bucks or something. But if you've been reading my stuff for a while or listening to the podcast for all now 66 episodes, you might have an idea of the kind of thing that you like and you'd like to see me do more of. Please let me know. Or if there's something that I haven't done that you'd like to see, let me know again in the comments or shoot me an email and I'll certainly take all suggestions into consideration. I want to make the membership in Tom Mullen Talks Freedom something worthwhile and something that you really enjoy. So other than that, everybody have a great weekend. If you haven't already, remember, subscribe to this podcast first and foremost. That's always going to be free and it's delivered right to your phone on your podcast application of choice automatically. Also, if you haven't yet downloaded my free ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, you certainly want to do that today, go to itsthefedstupid.com and download a free copy of the book. If you have the means, pick up the paperback as a giveaway for your friends or for your own bookshelf. The ebook is free, but the paperback is very reasonably priced and you can get all that, both the ebook and the paperback at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've been hearing on Tom Mullen talks freedom, you can hear more at Mullinsings.com. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you all on Monday. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to Freedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.